Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Vent. This is Fed Weekly. A collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture. Get a cracking. Santos. Suprina. Vent Weekly. Growing up in Stonebridge and Brent, I know of a lot of people who have had troubles with the police and the criminal justice system. And in a lot of cases, it could have been prevented. Today, we're getting into this. We're looking at one specific law which has had a huge impact on how certain young people get caught up in the criminal justice system. I do know what joint enterprise is, mainly because I watched it in Suits, and it's where you can get convicted of a crime, even if you haven't committed it. If you were, like, in the vicinity, or if you were, like, in the car that was carrying an illegal weapon or something, or if you were, like, in a WhatsApp group where someone said they were going to do something, like, you can get convicted of a crime, which I think is absolute nonsense. I've heard of people that have been in, like, a car, and they've been pulled over, and someone's been carrying, like, an illegal substance, and they all go down for it, which is uh, wholly and completely unfair. Today we're joined by Tracy Ford, founder of Jags Foundation, guest host Anjali Joshi and writer and speaker Umu Longley to talk about joint enterprise, a law that has sparked a lot of conversation over the last few years. So could you all introduce yourselves? Um, Tracy, did you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So hi, uh, my name is Tracy Ford and I'm the founder of Jags Foundation, informed by my own personal lived experience. Um, we're an organisation that provides services and safe spaces, particularly for early intervention, healing of young people and parents, historically addressing exclusion, violence, and how we restore the harm that, and damage that's been done in vulnerable communities. Hello, everyone. My name is Umu. I'm a writer and I'm, I'm dedicated to writing about causes that affect like the black community. And I specialise in like gender studies and black British history uh, and archives. My name's Anjali. I'm a presenter and host. Um, I grew up around sort of Harrow Brent area and I'm using my platform to sort of help unite the South Asian community with other ethnic minorities, especially in the climate we're in at the minute. We need a lot more unity amongst ethnic groups. So that's where I come in. So, Umu, could you please talk to us a bit about what Joint Enterprise is? Yeah, so Joint Enterprise is actually like a 300-year-old law that kind of had a resurgence in popularity, I feel like, during the 80s, just as like a narrative of youth violence and uh, gang, involved gang crime was kind of rising in British media, as did the use of Joint Enterprise. And it's basically, it means that you can be made guilty by association. So when two or more people are involved in an offence, it allows someone who's like a secondary party, so someone who was there, to be prosecuted and then also punished as if they were the principal offender. So it's kind of like regardless of what you actually did, you can be 
punished the same as if you were the, were the main person who undertook that crime. And they kind of base it around the idea that people, you're so, through associations, so it's called like guilt by association. Your associations to the people that you're around, like the people you hang out with, where you live, they kind of can make you guilty of crimes as if you committed them when you didn't. And does anybody know like any examples of joint enterprise? Angelique, could any come up to mind? Yeah, so I think the first sort of 10 years of my life, I grew up uh, sort of on an estate, not from the most economically advantaged background. And we were fortunate enough to come out of that situation. However, I vividly remember someone on my block, so to speak. There was four men in a car. He was unaware that there was a firearm in the car and he was prosecuted the same as everybody else when he had literally gotten in the car, I think five minutes prior to, just unaware, literally blissfully unaware of the situation and landed himself, I think it was either two years probation or jail time. So this is someone who, a clean person, never been in the system, never would have been in the system if he had not been at the wrong place at the wrong time, essentially. Um, And sort of small examples of this, I started to, you know, when you're younger, you don't really realise what's happening. And then as you get older and you hear people's stories, you realise that actually they were not liable at all to be in the circumstance they're in. So you do find that when you do come from environments where it's, as you said, the people you surround yourself with, you can't help who you grow up around and your advantage. Surely, I'm sure if he grew up in you know, a nicer postcode or a nicer area, he may not have found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and now part of a system which he's going to be in forever for the rest of his life. I spent, I think, the first three years when I founded JAGS, which is an acronym of my late son's name, when I was visiting um, young offenders institutes in um, just outside of London. And I was horrified at the number of young men who were under 18 who were serving 10 years and life of a joint enterprise. And it just made me really feel that I didn't want to be at the end of going into prisons and speaking to young people at that end, because that was just a little bit too late. These were young men who, as you say, because of the circumstances of where they live or who their friends are, were ended up doing really long sentences or something that they didn't actually do. So, um, Joint enterprises, it was being used many years ago, and I think it still is being used to stereotype, to penalise a lot of young black males. And it's very sad because we're losing, we're losing children and young people on both sides. There are statistics that joint enterprise like disproportionately impacts young black working class communities. So like, even though I guess ethnic minorities make up probably, well, like about 20% of the population, black people, 3% of the population, over half the people convicted of joint enterprise identify as like black or mixed race. And it's just like, so clearly a law that is used directly in instances where they can push a narrative that groups of black people are complicit in crime. That It's just like, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can view it as it not being inherently prejudiced. It's not like they use it in other crimes it's literally like mainly used in crimes where you can target like like groups of young black men it's the organized crimes and gangs which they try to then affiliate anyone in because according to the system if you're standing on the street with someone you're a part of their gang and that's it and i do think as well you find that the more you look into it the more you see why when you have more of the ethnic minorities specifically black men in sort of jail in prison or serving time, you find that they're not out there, they're not voting for their local MPs because they can't. And so change doesn't come. It's very domino effects where 
we can't even try to get change sometimes because we're getting more and more restricted with how much of us are literally out there and able to use our platforms and voices to even talk about these things. So it really seems like this law is targeting a certain demographic. Like how and why is this being done? Well, I think if you go to places like the Old Bailey, for example, and you, you just go and have a, a seat in some of the courts, you'll see that additionally there would be uh, one person being tried for a murder case. Now you're seeing five, six, seven young men in the dock for a murder case. And that's very, very, very common these days. If you go to a court, um, that's what you're going to find. So, yeah, again, it's, I think, targeted very um, young men who are from less fortunate backgrounds, from the estates. Um, when I guess I grew up on an estate and it's very different 40 years down the line to what it is today. Absolutely. And if I'm not wrong, I think in 2016, there was a case in which um, something to do with joint enterprise was actually taken to the Court of Appeal and it was shut down. So you find that even in these situations, when we try to call to action and sort of it becomes more and more aware, it's like I said, people will see it if they want to see it. But there's a lot of turning a blind eye And you find as well that in these murder trials and whatnot, you say that there's five or six or seven men who are sat there. If it was the exact same trial for a white man, middle-class man, it's highly unlikely that you'll find anyone else but that man in the room. Mm. You won't find his the man who sits opposite him in the office. You're not going to find the person who he's walking to work with every day and having a cigarette with. So it's just very obvious when you look at how the system, the numbers of the system, but you have to look. And I think people find it a lot easier to just turn a blind eye to the situation rather than confront it. And then it's hard as well because you feel very you feel demotivated, you don't want to because the Court of Appeal is literally rejecting the advances anyway. So it can be quite disheartening for the people who do have their eyes open and it is difficult for us to raise awareness on things that people just don't want to see sometimes. I think the the law from like the get-go is basically institutionally racist. For them to like successfully undertake this law, they have to rely heavily on this gang narrative in court. So without the gang narrative, the joint enterprise doesn't really pass so well. And a gang narrative is always going to be inherently racist. It's, it's like, and it's impo- an impossible narrative mm-hmm. for young black people to escape. So I think then more often than not, what they might do is build up a case based on associations. So they might collect evidence from your Facebook page or evidence from people who you live with or like CCTV footage of you in an area, like not even like at the crime, just nearby. And they build that to, to implicate you within a, a broader narrative of gangs. And then in court, they highly push this gang narrative to an all white jury and an all white set of judges. When you look at a group of black men in court, it's like you can't, they can't get that idea out of their head basically. So like, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do whether it's true or not. And a lot of the time, this narrative is used in place of actual forensic evidence. So there's no forensic evidence to tie you to the crime. But because this gang narrative works so strongly and it's such a strong image, particularly to a, a jury who in, like inevitably holds the prejudices that see all black people as criminals or as violent mm-hmm. or as gang members, it's just impossible to escape. And that is enough to convict you of a crime, whether there's any evidence or not. That blows my it's mind. So mad. Like, like they could just convict you like that. Have you ever heard about this Santos? 
or know anybody that's experienced this? Like I was born and raised in Stonebridge. That could have happened to me at any point. Like I could have just stopped to have a 30 second conversation with someone I know or someone that just lives in the area. And just because I'm with them in that moment and they might have possession of something, like I could go down with them when I was just walking past. But obviously like, yeah, I've I've heard of stories and there's a lot of cases where innocent people, not only through joint enterprise, but I feel like it happens a lot through joint enterprise where innocent people end up having to do jail time. And it's crazy because like, I found out that nearly a fifth of those convicted for joint enterprise are 18 or younger. So all of them are under the age of 25 and like they have to do time for something that they haven't done. And even as Umu said, like the people who investigate and stuff, they start trying to find evidence and they start digging other things out to kind of paint this person in a certain way where they're associated with gangs and stuff. And like even hearing that, I feel like if I was to be in a situation like that, they would kind of do the same thing. It, it just really makes me think about, you know, the, the decisions I've made in life, the type of people I've decided to associate myself with, especially being in the type of area that I'm in. It's very easy to kind of get drawn into that life anyway, to know that you don't have to be in that life. And just because you might have a friend or you might have grown up with someone in the area and you have nothing to do with that life, but the police can still draw you into it. That's very shocking. Yeah, and then I wanted to ask Tracy as well, because your organisation works with young people who are victims of this youth violence. So the people that are affected by joint enterprise, like how do you help them? Because I'm sure they need a lot of healing and because there's something traumatic to go through. So what kind of circumstances have you encountered and how do you help them? We've encountered a situation where we've been into boys' schools and delivered workshops and just raising awareness about, not that they need to know, but just some of the, the the issues around joint enterprise. And a lot of the young men say, there's nothing that can be done this. That's their attitude is nothing can be mm-hmm. done. And we have them in for work experience with our organisation. We have them come in and go to places like The Guardian, just to help to open up their vision and their opportunity of what can be. Because I think very often when you have a sense of, Nothing's going to change because we know people, our brothers, our cousins, people in a different generation that's gone through that path. Very often your aspirations can be, can be limited. Mm-hmm. You kind of think this is the path that set for us. This is what the opportunities are and there's not much. So what we do is we open up that kind of negative narrative that everything in society is not for you. What's for you is this path. Whereas I think that more opportunity needs to come like for young people where they actually are encouraged and they're supported to think past where they live and where they grow up. That's a sticking point for a lot of young people is that, you know, I grew up on an estate. I went to school not in my local area. So it was that kind of opportunity to see things that you wouldn't normally get to see. You wouldn't normally get mm-hmm. to be in a situation where people have run businesses. I think it's, it's, it's changed a lot. But I'm just saying there's still that thought process for a lot of young people that this is where we live, this is our area, this is ours, and this is all that the, there is for us. And that's what young people to do. We help to introduce them to 
with people and situations and environments that you wouldn't normally get access to because it's not your world. It's about reform. It's about having them see. I think like Tracy said, there is a much bigger picture to this world. There is so much more out there. And I think once they go in the system, it further disheartens them to believe because it, I, I do believe it is true. Once you're in there, in that system, they don't even identify you as a human being. You're that 10 digit code to them. So I find that I think with people who have already gone in and come out, the best way that we can approach situations is to find more ways that we can reform them back into society to understand that sometimes they can take that joint enterprise and they feel that, okay, well, this is who I am now. This is, you know, I've been convicted of this, so surely this is my mind state. I am a criminal. This is what I must do. But that's really not what it is. So I think it's all well and good for us to think, oh, I need to get out of the hood. We need to come out and have a better life. But we also need to create a better life for those who are still within that community. I agree. And I, I feel like at that that age range, I feel like it's very easy to be influenced by what's around you and what's in your environment. Oh, absolutely. It's like when, you, when you're born and when you're grown up and you're a child, you don't always make decisions for yourself. Exactly. And I feel like... That's something you only start to do more as you grow up. But I, I still feel like, again, like in areas like where I live and in the hood, in the ghetto, whatever you want to call it, the way the system is set up, even before they step into a prison, it's like they don't really have many options anyway. They have to go to school like everyone else. But even still, like I've I've known of situations in schools where even from my own experience where I've had like teachers that tell me I'm dreaming too big when I say I want to do something and they say, oh no, you might as well just focus on your studies now, get good grades and get a job in a bank or whatever. Just like, instead of actually like seeing that bigger picture. This is the thing, they sell you the dream of the institution that they have set up to be against us. And it's interesting that that's still happening because I went to school, what, 40 odd years ago. And I remember the fire service coming into our school. And when I asked my teacher, I said, oh, what's that? She said, oh, that's not for you. And you kind of think 40 years later, the dumbing down of opportunities about what's for you and what's not for you still continues. The whole institutional change has not yet come. So from education, a lot of the statutory services we are finding, there is disproportionate support this proportionate realisation of what you can and can't do. It just feels like this whole domino effect that it's still from 40, 50 years ago. And it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because we look at Windrush and we look at some of the stories that we're being shown and it's coming to light. You know, what needs to change? It's true. I, I do think we've raised a lot of awareness, but I think the world is quite awake now. So we do need to see, like, tangible change, legal action and change for it to not be our children and our children's children who still deal with these things. Fair. But sometimes I feel like the government feels like they're doing a lot when really and truly, if you look at everything they're doing, they're not doing nothing. And this goes back to the time where they thought, um, let's put the things on the chicken box 
um, like write that thing on the chicken box thing, like it would help people. Clearly, people in government are not doing their research, but that's because this is not an issue that they care about. It's not an issue to do with war or an issue that they want to put more funding in. So, of course, they're not going to put their time in it. It's like you said, it's about funding. They get money for every single person who's in a prison. Mm. So I do think it always boils down to, I always say everything that happens in this world boils down to power and money. And I wanted to go back to Umu actually, because you wrote about a case where 11 were convicted for murder. So could you just speak about that specific case and what happened? I mean, I don't know fully the ins and outs of it, but there's a very, very good Guardian like long read and they go fully through the details of it. But basically, uh, I think it was like the murder of Abdul Hafida. And there were like a group of people involved basically in like a fight. But one person actually undertook, like took it a level further. But because there were like a few people involved or like a few people just around in the park that day, they tried, I think, around 20 people for the crime and successfully committed 11 defendants for the murder of this person. And the youngest of that group was about 13 years old. No, 14 years old. And this was only in 2016. You'd think after something like that, that people would really start to kick up a fuss. (laughs) That people would say, how is this fair? That's not justice. That's not justice Mm -hmm. at all. So we've spoken about how this whole law can ruin young people's opportunities and it can change their perspective and think that, you know, they're no better than the crime they've been told they committed. But I wanted to go into, and maybe Tracy, you could talk a bit about this, but like not only the effect it has on that young person, but also the effect that it might have on their families. And I think, again, like you were saying, the ripple effect of murder and joint enterprise harms an extensive number of people. It's not just the person themselves, it affects your schoolmates, it affects your family, your extended family, or just people who don't even know you, but most probably live on, live on your road or, you know, went to school with you when you were five. But it's that kind of ripple effect. I know young people who have said, like, I've lost five friends. They've lost five friends, but then there's the repercussion. There's the perpetrator, the people who have committed the offence. You lose people on both sides. And I think that's the yeah. hardest thing you don't realise is that the traumatic effects of... Losing someone to youth murder, or I call it child murder, because it's children killing children. You know, youth on youth makes it sound like it's more acceptable because youth are can take responsibility for their behaviour. The ripple effect is huge. And I just think with joint enterprise, again, it's like parents who are raising their children, rightly or wrongly, but still their children are being convicted of, of, of joint enterprise. That's mm. destruction to families, cousins, siblings, friends. You know, it's, it's horrid. I just think that the trauma that a lot of children are living with no longer is just um, in isolation. Trauma is affecting a lot of young people. Looked at as something that's affecting children's behaviour, children's well-being, children's physical and mental well-being. And joint enterprise is huge. There's a group of um, made up of family members, mainly of people affected by joint enterprise called Jangba, which I think is means joint enterprise, not guilty by association. And they're like essentially just parents and families who have lost people to the system, to this system. And they really do campaign like tirelessly for uh, the abolition of joint enterprise. I think in 2016, they, they like fought it as part of a ruling that went mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court and basically 
in this ruling, the Supreme Court ruled that joint enterprise had been misinterpreted. So for the past 30 years, as the conviction rate of joint and under joint enterprise was increasing, uh, the Supreme Court recognised that this law had been misinterpreted in those convictions. So these convictions had been based on the kind of idea of foresight, which is this thing about that's involved in the gang narrative. So that because you're in a gang, you have foresight for murder. And the Supreme Court ruled that this was not enough of a justification to lock people away for murder. They and specified mm-hmm. that for that to apply, you had to have actually encouraged serious bodily harm to someone. But most of these cases, people didn't encourage serious bodily harm. They were just there. Exactly, yeah. And you'd kind of expect that given that ruling, and, and what this is what members of Jengbo expected, that given that ruling, there would be a review. And all of the people that were in prison using this kind of foresight gang narrative would have their case appealed. But mm-hmm. that hasn't happened. Like, barely anyone has been released because of their conviction. And it's actually, the gang narrative is still enforced during people's trials. So it was like a mm. false recognition. It was like, yeah, sorry, we yeah. Know, but actually we're not, we don't actually want to do anything about it. So does this mean that there can't be changes to joint enterprise then? Like it will never be abolished? Because if that law sounds so definite, like it sounds like something that could change, but clearly they didn't even re- review it and nothing happened. So is there no hope for joint enterprise to be abolished? I personally feel that there's such a fear of young men, young black men, but I feel that in order to get that really reviewed, because that's what they use to criminalise a lot of young, young black men. Mm-hmm. And I feel that in order to get that reviewed, it's going to take a big legal move by lawyers and by others who are directly affected to get that removed. It's like, like you said, it's a 300-year-old law that's been brought back mm-hmm. to do what? Criminalise a community people mm-hmm. how do we rid mm-hmm. that amongst a society that's already been since Stephen Lawrence and the report that the police are institution how, how do we change that so how do we think is the best way to support these young people affected by joint enterprise and by someone who is affected by a family member of a joint enterprise? Um, Tracy, I know you have this organisation. So what do you think is the best thing we can do? I think it's all about education. I think it's all about supporting young people in environments where they don't feel supported. For example, why do we have so many young black males excluded from school? It's the conversations that need to happen around how do we provide more support services and engage with young people at ages, what I call turbulent teenage years, because that's what it's become. It's every teenager goes through change. We all do. I think it's about us as adults, as young people, beginning to have that narrative and that dialect of this is what happens in our areas. These are the organizations that exist. This is what we can be doing. We can be having podcasts. We can be building our confidence as young people to speak up because not everyone gets confidence just like that. Confidence is something that grows. But if you're having more conversations like this, Una, you know, where this is what I do. Young people can see that this is what you do in your world. They become more confident to speak up. You put them in a room with five or six people and a counsellor, they will speak. And I think it's about growing the, the, the confidence within young people to say, I don't have to do that. I can actually do that. I can become this. I can become that. It takes time to nurture the confidence in us as people to grow, to be able to say, this is what I want, I want to do. And I'm going to stick with that because I don't want to go down that path just because I'm 
I'm less advantaged because my parents didn't have much. Doesn't mean I have to be less advantaged. Well, thank you guys for joining us for this conversation. It was a pleasure to speak to you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Vent Weekly. I've been Sabrina. And I've been Santos. And thanks a lot to Tracy, Umu and Anjali for coming on. You can find more information about JAGS Foundation at jagsfoundation.org and Umu's article about joint enterprise on vice.co.uk. This episode was produced by the Vent production team, Jess Lawson, Amelia Gill, Moeed Majid and Ali Adlington. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent's London Borough of Culture 2020. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.